This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with David James Duncan, author of the novel Sun House. When I was an activist, I was often a smartass. And I'm good at it, but I'm not proud of it anymore. I would rather write something that might make someone cry out of happiness. And I've done that. We'll be back with David James Duncan after these essential words. Okay, here's what I want to say about pitching for patrons. It's my least favorite thing to do, but it supports my most favorite thing to do. Share this podcast with the world and with you. And so I'm wondering, do you get something out of this? Do you listen more than eight times a year? Is there something of value for you in these episodes? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then why not support this content by becoming a patron of First Draft. You can do that at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Here's the common conversation I have at parties. Okay, I don't really go to parties because I'm always doing this, but this is a common conversation I have about this podcast. So why did you start this, someone asks. I don't really know. I was a radio reporter for years and getting my MFA in fiction, and I missed interviewing people. So I combined these two things and started this show. I didn't really think about what I was doing. I didn't have a master plan. It just seemed like a fun idea at the time. And I still don't really have a master plan, but it's been 10 years that I've been doing this. So then they asked, do you make money? And the answer is, I have some incredible patrons, but they come and go. And lately, for whatever reason, and this is really vulnerable here, more people have left than joined. I can't pretend to know why, but in exit surveys, they usually say it's for financial reasons and that they really love the content. And I get that. I really get it because there are expenses to make this podcast and financial needs to make this podcast. I will say that every hour I'm working on this is time I'm not spending at a quote unquote paying gig. Times have changed since we got our newspapers on our stoops twice a day. You know that. Our content comes from all over the place. But in this case, there isn't an AI behind this, just an I, which is me, Mitzi, all by my lonesome, doing the research, booking the guests, reading their work, conducting the interview, uploading it into the podcast world, and then doing it again and again and again, more than 50 times in the last year. I produce one episode a week, and that is on top of all my other jobs, which is why I don't go to parties or really do anything on the weekends except for this. So if you value this podcast, please consider supporting it with a financial contribution. Membership starts at $6 a month and includes extras like writing tips, cuts that didn't make it into the final show, end of the year thank you gifts, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and more. I think in this world we have to support what we love and there is an energy there that comes back to us. So please go to patreon.com slash first draft writers and become a supporter of first draft today. 
It still doesn't make a shred of sense that I'm doing this podcast. Still, here I am after a decade. But Rumi said, set your life on fire. Seek those who fan your flames. So I'm inviting you to warm yourself by this fire and bring your fan along. Patreon.com slash First Draft Writers. And on to the show. My guest today is David James Duncan, author of the novels The River Y and The Brothers K and the story collection River Teeth, as well as the nonfiction collection and National Book Award finalist My Story is Told by Water and a collection of churchless sermons called God Laughs and Plays. He has won numerous awards, including two Pushcart Prizes, three Pacific Northwest Booksellers Awards, and the Western States Book Award. He lives on a stream in Missoula, Montana. His new novel, Sun House, is an epic quest for transcendence in an anything-but-transcendent country. A series of unrelated incidents befall various characters. A random bolt from a plane falls from the sky, killing a child and throwing a young Jesuit into crisis. A young boy's mother dies on his fifth birthday, sparking a lifetime of repressed anger that he unleashes once a year. A young woman on the run in Seattle experiences a shooting star moment that pierces her with a love that will eventually help heal the angry man, the Jesuit, and countless others. This ragtag group of characters end up in a community in Montana finding refuge and delight. We began the discussion with David James Duncan talking about his experience when he's writing. Most often it seems like you empty out or even disappear. When I'm, when I'm writing, uh, I'm very often just in a flow state and I don't even know who I am or where I am. I'm inside the art that's being created and people as diverse as um, Flannery O'Connor and W.B. Yates have talked about the same kind of feeling they get when they're creating W.H. Auden uh, talked about how um, anytime you lose yourself, it's prayer. And um, I don't care what people call it, but I I wanted to see how far I could go with allowing a variety of characters with very different personalities, but all with five senses and an intuition to have some of these kinds of experiences sometimes out of something incredibly negative, sometimes out of something very subtle, uh, sometimes out of something flagrant. And so in a way, yes, I was trying to... Uh, Sunhouse was... My daughter is an organic farmer in Bellingham. And, um, I think of Sunhouse as like organic... Uh, an or, or form of organic word farming. And, um, <laughs> and so I was just trying to bring in a good harvest uh, with this giant novel. And um, so far, the responses I'm getting have been really gratifying. I mean, a lot of people just no freaking way. And uh, this thing is too long. What a self-indulgent fool. How could he make us think that we're going to give whatever it is, a month of our lo- our reading lives to one thing. Um, but a lot of people are responding now by saying the rewards are great if you do. And um, that's what I was hoping for. How do you describe this book to someone who, say you were just on the sidewalk and someone said, okay, you need to describe this book to so I can know if I should read it. What would you even say? I say uh, that 
Little Brown was so aware of the difficulty of that, that when they did this ad early on that introduced Sun House as the book that was about absolutely everything and just made a joke out of it. And uh, that's what I do. It's like everything I know of any importance is in this book. And I really doubt if I also usually say I really doubt if you want to read this, you know, if it's somebody on the sidewalk, I will. I'll try to cajole my friends maybe into reading it if I know they're serious readers. But um, so far, I don't think anybody's. Yeah, no, a bunch of people have asked me. Yeah, what's it about? Especially if they see it in my hand. And um, I just get a little impression of the person and I might open up or I might just kind of beg the question. Uh, it just depends on how I feel at that moment. I'll, I'll try and you can help me out because there is so much. But you have a few main characters. You have a man named Jamie who's um, into theater and he has a beloved dog whose mother died on his birthday and he grew up with that mark. And you have a woman named Risa who is very into learning Sanskrit language and has a really difficult relationship with her father who left when she was young. And you have Lorelei Kalore, who is a folk musician with, uh, she plays the dulcimer and she ends up having a child and you have these brothers. One was, um, this, this Jesuit monk who quit and the other one is trying to start a restaurant and they inadvertently come into money and, but they're trying to live a more simple life. And, and those are some of the main characters. There's also, you know, some other people as you come along and, and they have disparate stories, but they all sort of meet up in this commune in Montana and they, they're living together to also, and very connected to Native American people there to kind of um, fight against the powers that be in the corporate world and are trying to find their way in the world. And in the midst of all this, they're examining so many different world religions and mystic traditions and literary traditions to discover their philosophy and how they feel about life on Earth and even beyond. How's mm -hmm. that? How's that? That was a really good summary of what I was trying to do. Um, I've been able to test it on the ground. Um, last month, I went to a gathering called the Old Salt Fest in Montana that 1,600 people attended, and they were all like doing the best kind of cattle raising that you can possibly do, um, which is a lot more important than people realize because much of the work of the world is is like savanna lands or dry lands like all the rain shadow country on the east side of the Rockies. Um, and they, um, well, I, I won't go into too much detail, but th the thing is these people who, who are growing beef so responsibly, it's a lot greater labor intensive the way they're doing when they flood a field and then um, the, their cattle get to graze for one day and then they move them because they've done all the good they can. And they're actually raising the water table and sequestering carbon because of the way they ranch. And then, you know, the urban rural interface, a lot of times uh, doctrinaire um, vegans just feel like they're evil people. And what's really obvious, if you know many ranchers, is a lot of them really love their cattle. And it breaks their hearts when they have to take them to slaughter. Uh, highlands, which are the cattle featured in Sun House, 
are slaughtered at two and a half years old. And um, so there's a scene in the novel where there's a young vegan woman, but she fell in love with a tobacco chewing, steak eating, calf roping cowboy. And they're kind of the Romeo and Juliet, you know, the Montague and the Capulet. And um, there's a rancher who um, is the foreman of a whole bunch of, uh, well, a small group of cowboys who are growing the cattle on the Elk Moon Beguine and Cattle Company. And um, she can see on a slaughter day that his heart is broken. He had to kill eight of his two and a half year old friends. And um, and uh, she approaches him and starts trying to console him. And um, when I read this scene at the old Salt Fest, there were maybe a thousand people involved with ranching, various aspects of the beef growing industry. And um, as she ratcheted up the language until she was almost talking about a Eucharist when she was describing her need, even though she's vegan, she wants one bite of the body and the blood. And uh, when I shared that with this crowd, there were tears rolling out from under Stetson's. And that doesn't happen very often. And I felt really good about what that scene was doing. Neither of what you'd think would be a stereotype, the foreman, the cowboys, the vegan woman, fell into that thing that a certain famous disc jockey I won't name does, where he just turns his his events into uh, sermonizing, telling all people who are carnivores that they're bad people. And um, I ended up reading that scene uh, in four places on my book tour, and I had people who were involved with ranchers um, cry and laugh and thank me because they know how much ranchers love those animals that they tend. And it does break their hearts when they take them to harvest, but it's also what feeds them. And, um, and that scene really worked. And I don't know what gave me the courage to do it because it really could have gone south uh, in beef growing country. But uh, I lived another day and uh, oh, lots of hugs and congratulations and smooches and all kinds of stuff. And uh, it was a good day. It seems to me that there's some, there's a lot of dichotomies in your book. And of course, if you're looking at the nature of reality, where it's filled with ambiguity and paradox. But I sensed mm-hmm. in your book, um, there's a lot of movement and a lot of stillness. And there's a lot of people that want to be alone and people who want to be in community. And that struggle between the two. And I'm I'm curious, you know, about uh, if you see that in your novel and what you would say. In order to prevent the novel from be- being doctrinaire, I felt two things are incredibly important. I felt this my whole career. If you're sharing a form of grief that almost everyone experiences, like when Jamie has to put down his beloved dog, Romeo, um, that just wipes out, that scene wipes out people who've had to put down a dog any time within the last 10 years. And, um, or a scene like how brutal um, the wildfires have become. Um, and in the midst of all the action that's kind of driving a plot, 
um, I try to create these moments of just stillness where, and actually at the thing we'll do at the end when you want me to read a couple little things that were difficult, I'll talk, I'll, I'll read a couple of these scenes that are almost drawing on what Risa calls flame language, um, or on some remarkable moment of stillness where just a simple description of what's happening in the natural world uh, can feel bigger than that. It can almost be that moment when a person is internalizing um, what's around them and you almost feel a shift. I've always described it. Um, the first time I walked up a trout stream, I was a Bible beaten kid. And I was eight years old. My dad took me to a trout stream and handed me a nine-foot fly rod that was really difficult for an eight-year-old kid to control. I ended up putting a fly through my earlobe. But um, I felt like because of words I'd heard at an Adventist church, I suddenly understood walking upstream with that rod what Jesus meant when he said, the kingdom of heaven is within you which is, that's kind of a big thought for an eight-year-old kid to have, but um, it just made sense because I felt like I was walking inside of something that I wanted to get deeper and deeper inside of. And that was really the first of, you know, thousands of times when I've been about to walk 10 miles up a river or uh, standing at a trailhead. It was just the beginning of what it was both an exterior and interior life that began at that moment when I was eight. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you talk some more about sort of the idea of solitude and self-determination which is such a characteristic, I think, of the West with mm -hmm. joining together and communal living and relying on one another to do something maybe greater than we can do alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, our, our culture has been designed um, in so many ways that are just about maximizing profits for those who provide us things like washing machines and cars and refrigerators. And like, everybody has to buy one. Everybody has to own all these things, you know, on the, on the Elk Moon Begin and cattle company, they suddenly uh, buy more industrial strength freezers and things that the whole community is sharing. And, um, and they go from having like 50 breaking down vehicles to having like 20, really good vehicles that anyone can use and some will of course still have their own vehicles but um there's just a lot of small practical things that you can do also that the cottages they live in uh prevent i mean it's like mcmansions are basically never going to happen in this place um and everybody's living and they can pick different sizes of these um of these custom cottages but um, just a whole bunch of displays of greed and ostentation are, are never going to happen in this community because they've designed it in a way where there's a certain humility in the size of the building that you have 
the proximity to neighbors. Uh, they build an incredibly uh, important kind of combination, town hall, Zendo, uh, um, dumpster Catholic cathedral in the form of this beautiful um, barn that Risa just donates with money that she was going to receive from her father. And when the community was meeting and she started the meeting with this gigantic gift to all of them, she set a tone that a bunch of people almost in shock um, offered more than they maybe were prepared to um, because they could see how serious their, 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 Jamie likes to call it an unintentional menagerie because in a, in an intentional community, um, I know of the guy, I know s- several people who've been in communities and I'm friends with the guy, Chris Roth, who has the magazine, the big national magazine about communities. And often it's our intentions that um, cause communities to fail because people will really be adamant about their big idea. Um, but, you know, the Republican National committee is an intentional community and uh you want to be part of that kind of intention you know um so jamie was just trying to lighten things up by calling it a menagerie um and and my friend chris at this magazine has told me no way in hell am i going to be calling this unintentional menageries magazine (laughs) Uh, and he's right not to do that I mean, not that you have to espouse the philosophy of your book, you're exploring all these things, but I'm curious what it feels like to you to live not in a community. I don't know if you live alone. I know your girls are grown and I think I read somewhere you live in a a condo by a river. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, how does that, I'm just curious about your thoughts about that for, for your life. Mm -hmm. I've lived in a lot of different ways. Um, And um, the, the most consistent thing is that I've always been, uh, pretty close to, a poverty level income because, um, I've never, I never wanted to be a tenured prof. So I don't have connections to any big umbrella organizations that created a retirement package for me. I'm living by my wits as they get more and more forgetful. <laughs> um, but I've lived in in really some one. I lived in a wonderful community on the Oregon coast. I lived in another one on a on a in a in a neighborhood in Portland. But communities, I mean the 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 circles of friends that I've been part of, some of them have lasted a really long time, and they're they're usually somewhat scattered. But it's it's they circle back around, and you know I know certain people in the desert Southwest that I that I love to visit. I know people um, in Seattle in the Puget Sound area, basically same deal. And, um, and when, when I've made these circles, these connections form and people from a really another wonderful unifying thing in my life has been fly fishing because people will travel a long ways to experience the the fly fishing that's still available in Montana. That's caused me to become um, really close with some of my heroes, Peter Matheson, Jim Harrison, um, a whole bunch of uh, great fishing writers and and guides and poets, and um, also um, there's just I've always been attracted 
when I was young, for some reason, I just kept making friends with wise, older, much older women. And um, that's been a kind of consistent theme. I'm just attracted to strong women who know what they're doing, and we become friends. And um, and now I'm an oldster alongside those women friends, and um, it's been a sweet ride. And that's just another way that feels it feels kind of communal to me. Is your creative process, is, do you feel like it's necessary to be alone for that? Yes. I need huge amounts of solitude, huge amounts of solitude and, um, and quiet. Um, because I really am interested the novel form, especially more than essays, essays often begin as talks I've given, and then I just make them better when I turn them into essays. But, um, the novel form, I feel like I'm playing my spiritual edge every day. Um, so many fiction writers aspire downward. They want characters who they feel are less than they are so they can, can remain in control of them. I aspire to portray characters who I think are more are wiser and more more attentive, more uh, mindful, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, more, more attuned than I am and try to aspire up as I'm writing in order just to be able to portray these people who, I mean, who I admire. I admire because they have the traits of, of many wonderful people that I'm friends with. I'm curious about your thoughts about power, the power of people to make changes, because I felt like a lot of characters in your book made changes from where they started, which is something that you want for fiction. Some mm-hmm. changes were bigger than others, but yeah. I'm curious about that in fiction, but also on, on a more spiritual level. I am trying to portray this, this spiritual level in the characters in Sunhouse. And um, there's not a, there's not one of them who doesn't have traits of, of genuine people I know, but um, on the spiritual level, I'm not sure where that is because it's almost like, for me, it's almost like the question when people talk about the natural world as if we're not in it every day, even if we live in a city, we're in the natural world. Uh, the weeds growing through the cracks in the pavement are the natural world. And um, spirituality seems a little bit the same way. It's it's there all the time. If um, there's a wonderful tradition in China that a lot of the greatest sages live in the cities because it's more difficult to be uh a, a strong contemplative in a city than than out on uh, where Han Shan does it up in the isolation in the mountains or Ryokan's hut where he lets bamboo grow through the roof he doesn't repair his leaky roof um, so yeah it's hard for me to make a, 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 sep- a separation I just feel like nature and spirit are there in our lives every day how we choose the degree to which we choose to interact have a lot to do with how we make our living, whether we found a vocation that we love or whether we find our work exhausting. That's a huge difference between people. Um, I was also part of a, of a contemplative group for seven years that um, was all women except for me and another man named Duncan. And 
we met at three o'clock in the afternoon on Saturdays. And when we started saying what we wanted to do, it was just funny because the whole group, this friend of mine who is a, is a, a psychotherapist uh, just called together eight friends who she knew had some kind of spiritual practice. And as soon as we were in a room together, this mind began to form that was like a group mind. Uh, my friend Anita said, I said, we should meet late enough on a Saturday so that it never feels like church. And Anita said, yeah, and 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 we should only get together once every three weeks, because if we come once a week, it's going to feel like church. And we just wanted nothing to do with anything church-like. And it became this really, I'd had a lot of talks with Wendell Berry about, he's a churchgoer, I'm not. And um, because to me, the world is the first church, the living world is the first church. And that's, that's the one I'm committed to. I love Mother Teresa for saying, I hope God breaks my heart so completely that the whole world falls in. And um, this little group we had, um, it was just amazing how we would start with 10 minutes of silence. Sometimes the silence would last for 40 minutes. Other times, uh, someone the, the rule was you just tried to say something that was rising out of your inner life or whatever you were feeling during the, the silence. You wouldn't start off by naming some politician who was driving you batshit in the TV news at night. And they became some of the most uh, nuanced conversations I've ever had with a group of seven people. And I wrote to Wendell Berry, who's a friend, in the middle of that and said, Wendell, I think I found my church. And um, it, was, it was right after I'd written a book called God Laughs and Plays, which was trying to purge myself of uh, purge the certain kind of negative church going. Um, but anyway, it was, it was really a wonderful group that lasted still friends with several of those people. You have these characters and I'm sure that you're in love with them in a certain way. And some of them probably annoy you just like real people. And you're writing about them over 16 years and I'm sure that you went through your own personal changes. So how do mm -hmm. you maintain a narrative voice over 16 years while your life is changing so much? And maybe your ideas of the world. I don't know. Yeah, in some ways they did. Um, by the end of Sun House, um, one thing that's dropped away is that I was much more an activist when I was younger. And in touring Sun House, I've met so many people who still love the River Y and the Brothers K, both of which still sell a lot of copies. And I realized that I like the effect my novels have had on the world more than the effect my nonfiction has had. Uh, when you're going after the people who love dams at a time when 80% of the world's rivers have been dammed, and um, most of the time by petty dictators or by corrupt bureaucracies like the Bonneville Power Administration that has that driven many of the salmon runs and steelhead runs of the Columbia Snake River to extinction. Um, you just have to be so testy um, going after those people, you know, and I've I've done a lot of that and I've had a lot of things like I've been done a couple of town halls in Seattle of salmon activism where 
you can just see how the room divides politically and there'll be these mass exoduses of people out of the lecture hall when I when I get a little too specific about um, I'm not even going to start because I pretty much renounced that. I'm doing everything I can for wild salmon still, but it's in a way that it, it again is taking a more mythological approach. And um, it, in this form of a graphic novel that I'm writing, that's I mean, that's completely mythological, and it's all told in the verse of um, W. B. Yeats, the song "Wandering Angus." I went out to the hazel wood because a fire was in my head, and cut and peeled a hazel wand and hooked a berry on a thread. And when white moths were on the wing and moth-like stars came flickering out, I dropped the berry in a stream and caught a little silver trout. When I had lain it on the floor and turned to blow the fire flame, something rustled on the floor and someone called me by my name. It had become a glittering girl with apple blossoms in her hair who called me by my name and vanished through the brightening air. Though I am old with wandering through hollow lands and hilly lands, I will find out where she has gone and kiss her lips and take her hands and walk along long dappled grass and pluck till time and times are done. The silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun, which is a mythological allegiance to the pursuit of beauty that Yeats held to his entire life and only seemed to get into trouble when he got political. <laughs> and um, so I'm just at this point in life, maybe some of the fight has gone out of me, but I'm just more attracted to the, the truth that is beauty. So do you think that your writing changed because of it by the time you were done with this? I'd say in a way, yes, because I, I just don't want to go back to I just re I just reviewed this novel that I worked on for three years in the early 90s. And um, I don't even like the me that was working on this book. And uh, I won't be pursuing it. I I have changed in some way because this is this is a manuscript, maybe four or five hundred pages. And I don't want to pick it up again because I remember how I felt as I was working on it. And um, I'm, I'm less willing to make certain kinds of trouble that. There's a little too heavy, too much reliance on the old saying, I'd rather be a smartass than a dumbass. When I was an activist, I was often a smartass. And I'm good at it, but I'm not proud of it anymore. I would rather write something that might make someone cry out of happiness. And I've done that. It's I just like the way I feel better when that's my aspiration, rather than writing some wrong. I feel like so many wrongs are going to be righted because I think we're in the process of destroying ourselves. I mean, the powers that be are, uh, there's going to be a reckoning of some kind. And I don't want to make any dire projections. I'm no prophet, but I don't think we're out of the woods yet. And um, just hope, you know, the earth will recover. We've been through five great extinctions and the earth brought back biodiversity every time. But um, the question is whether biodiversity will be back after the sixth extinction with a speed that allows a healthy number of humans to repopulate as well as all the wild creatures and species we look forward to 
coming forth in, in new forms. So, In terms of, you know, those 16 years, it seems like your table of contents, which is really, uh, you do it in tellings, like the first telling, um, the second telling, the fifth telling, the fourth telling, um, and then underneath you have all these Roman numerals that are like little chapters. So I'm wondering if you maybe organized this first and then wrote as an organizing principle or how? We're very perceptive. <laughs> I revised that table of contents. That was my ordering device. And I, I rebuilt it a hundred times while I was working on Sunhouse. Um, in, in much more detail, and then I would clean it up. But it, I mean, it's still very intricate. But but the places where I would see how the chapters move uh, would just spring out between the two lines of the table of contents, and there would be new material. And um, I, I, if you, I just like a, a table of contents. You're trying to make something that feels a little more finished than if you're just making outlines. We're kind of dweebing out here on on process, but I know that's part of what you do. And um, yeah, it was it's just extremely helpful to me to rip apart a little opening between the lines in a table of contents and like right there. That's where this thing that was in this in the fifth telling should have been here in the last telling and I'll and I'll move it and see it move read it, see how it feels. And almost always it's a yes when I'm working in that way with a table of contents, not an outline. Do you want to talk about the title at all? Yeah. I have a wonderful editor, Michael Peach. He edited David Foster Wallace. He edited Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch. And then, you know, he's done very well at Little Brown and then became the CEO of Hatchet Book Group but he still likes to edit. Michael tried to publish The River Why when he was a young associate editor at Scribner's. And um, and he told me that it was going to happen. And I said, so I'm mowing lawns for a living. Are you telling me I can buy a bunch of champagne and give my friends a cheap headache? You know. And he said, yeah, I'm telling you that. And six weeks later, the uh, director of publishing, who Michael thought was just a formality, said this book would be better at half its size. And instead of being heartbroken, I wrote Michael a letter and said, well, tell him that I got my chainsaw and I've cut the manuscript in half. So he just needs to tell me whether he wants the right half or the left half. And Michael saved that letter for like 14 years. And John Williams, who's now at the Washington Post, who wrote a really nice review of Sun House, came to interview me in town. And um, But he also, um, he knew about Michael showed him that letter and there was a little piece in the New York Times about the the chainsaw offer. That was a really hilarious thing um, in a little piece called Together at Last, which is about me and Michael connecting all these years after his you know failure with the River Y. And beginning even way back then, whenever anything good happened to the River Y or the Brothers K, he would write me a really Michael would write me a really kind letter. I mean, we've been pen pals for however many years that is coming up on 40. And um, yeah, so it's really been wonderful to to work with that man. And he helped name it? Oh, that was what I was getting to. Um, yeah, he he really liked the name of, you know, book one is uh, Moaning is Connected with Hope. Book two is Eastern Western. 
Michael thought that was really catchy and um, he liked it. I felt the novel is so much more serious uh, in many ways that catchy wasn't exactly what I was looking for. I was looking for something epic and mythological and so that it was the name of this tribe of mountain wandering people, the Lumai, that it was their name for Mother Earth seemed much more powerful. And um, I wrote a three-page single-space letter to Michael saying why it could not be named Eastern Western. It had to be named Sun House. And and Michael really is a man of his word. He really feels, uh, maybe sometimes even if he feels like we're picking an idea inferior to his, he, he gives his authors uh, the ability to create the book that they felt was there to agree that to a degree that would have been uh, fatal for a writer like, I don't know, the Comorn Angel, Thomas Wolfe, or someone like that, who is almost like uh, self-destructively stubborn uh, that their idea is the only thing that flies. Um, Michaels did many edits of uh, Sunhouse that I really took to heart. But he also was really good about when when I would explain how this is really important and I can soften it, but I can't remove it. He was, he just was wonderful to work with. He waited a long time to work with you. He did. Yeah. And vice versa. <laughs> um, how long was your, I think your book is, I, I don't have the final copy, but it's 762 pages on my copy. How much was the, how many pages was the original draft? Well, it was in a completely, you know, it was just in a completely different kind of font. I think the the first, the draft that I finished and sent to Michael was, to, you know, like just typewriter paper, and it was 1,100 pages. And I would say of those pages, we probably cut 15%. Um, and then they just worked hard to make the book look smaller than it is because it's something like 370,000 words squeezed into that package so we were cheating a little um that's only half the length of war and peace but when you're talking about war and peace oh my god you're not talking to uh people with reduced attention spans because of uh gizmo gazing i i, I just there's just the kind of book it is i just am so appreciative to anybody who finishes it because because i know how demanding it is but it it says what I wanted to say. And um, and those who are reading it are, are having a really good time, at least according to the things they write to me. So. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I'm going to read a W.S. Merwin poem that influenced me with its blend of uh, beauty and a despairing helplessness because there's a power that the helplessness somehow creates. And if I get emotional while I read this, I'll just go like this for a minute and hide, and then I'll, then I'll remove it when I get my shit back together, okay? The poem is titled, Thanks. Listen, 
With the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water thanking it, standing by the windows looking out in our directions. Back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging, after funerals, we are saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you. In doorways and in backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the door and the beatings on stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks, we are saying thank you. In the faces of the officials and the rich and of all who will never change, we go on saying thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, taking our feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us, we are saying thank you faster and faster. With nobody listening, we are saying thank you. Thank you. We are saying and waving, dark though it is. Tell me more about why you chose that. I had a, a dear friend who's the abbot of a, a the Trappist monastery that I visited a lot in Oregon um, ever since I was 18. And he sent me that poem. He loved it. He was he became a monk because he was a captain in the Navy in World War II and was traumatized by things he saw in the Pacific Theater and wanted no part of that kind of life and was a really wonderful man. He became friends with Shinryo Suzuki, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, head of the San Francisco Zen Center, and brought Zazen to Trappist uh, contemplative life in America and was a really dear man. And it was nice for me just to remember his love for that poem um, as I selected it for this audience. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you like. Sunhouse is demanding. And for that reason, I try to provide these brief resting places for the reader throughout uh, scenes of self-giving in which, to quote the book, each person is out to be each other's prayer answered or a description of living landscapes. And I'd just like to share two of those little resting places. In the first Risa has just driven 700 miles from Portland to Montana to return her father's ashes to a high mountain meadow that was his favorite place on earth. The mountain enclosed her so decisively, she felt like a passing thought inside their, their deathless mind. A few ravens strolled the yellow grass like golfers, bending over frost-paralyzed grasshoppers as if over putts only to swallow them whole. In the blue overhead, the night's billion stars hid behind light. On the smooth glides of the elk moon, the rise rings were so bright they went on dazzling after she closed her eyes. In the second resting place, a wise old woman who wanders Montana mountains as a spiritual practice is telling her young acolyte, a former computer geek, what to look for on his high mountain wanderings. Those who think spirit contact requires some big old thunderhead type God have confused wisdom with mountain top coal removal. A hoverfly can open us, a patch of lichen on a rock, 
the amazingly deep trenches dug in a single summer by the trillion footfalls of a little freeway of red and black ants. The silent seconds it takes the sound of falling stones to travel a mile across a valley, becoming the audible clatter that draws our eye to the ant-sized bull elk who caused it trotting away. This passage is like that, just create a space for silence that I thought might keep people going if, uh, if I'd been too rough on. <laughs> Where do you write? I write um, at the window behind me. You see that back there, which yeah. looks out. It looks out on the little trout stream uh, in Missoula in accord with my late friend Jim Harrison's advice to spend the later years of my life disguised as a creek. The most creek-like thing I do every day is fall into a flow state when I'm working. Jim described that like so. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy joining at night the full sweet flow, to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I take long walks in, in the pine forests that cover uh, much of Western Montana. I like some good elevation gain and loss for aerobic purposes and pine forests serve up peace and aromatherapy and pine squirrels and chipmunks and the owls and hawks that prey on them. And I take the same walks repeatedly, which allows me to befriend individual chipmunks and talk to them. They're, they're very fond of this. I make this sound, Let's see if I can do it. I can't if I'm smiling. And I've had as many as um, six chipmunks come out of hiding and line up on a log and they get so relaxed that they gather stuff to nibble like popcorn at the movies and uh, hold it in those adorable little paws. And, but pine squirrels hearing the same um, run at me in a rage, park on a branch eight or 10 feet out of reach and uh, cuss me in squirrel profanity. I can't translate because it's so full of F-bombs. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a circle of friends I share green stories with. Most are poets who've shared poems with me, so it's we're bartering, a uh, favor for a favor. Unless I'm submitting work I feel is ready for publication, I prefer feedback from writers, not editors, because writers are in the trenches with me. Many editors are more like military officers bossing us from the safety of a fortified command center or something. I prefer fellow comb combatants like uh, the novelist Tom McGuane, who said, fiction is the ditch I will die in. Me too, Tom. And no editor would ever say that. <laughs> How have you dealt with rejection? By refusing to kiss. This is something a friend of mine who was a student at Stanford said to me when I was still in high school. I refuse to kiss the rancid ass of despair. So I send my work out to get rejected again. And my first novel, River Y, was rejected by every publisher in New York and Boston, 25 total. It was then published by a small West Coast publisher who'd never done a novel before and remained so successful that after 40 years in print, despair just isn't something my career chose to give me. And what is your favorite word? In relation to my writing practice, it's the trigger word in a sentence in which no other word 
will do. I work with a 1,300-page thesaurus I find surprisingly useless, but it's a helpless, helpful use, usefulness. A true trigger word is the only word in the language that serves the purpose I seek, and a thesaurus has an amazing ability not to provide that word, but by showing me all the words that come close but miss the needed meaning, I often find the trigger word by the process of elimination. Thank you so much for your time in this discussion. I'm so grateful. Me too, Mitzi. Thank you. If you like today's show with David James Duncan, author of the novel Sunhouse, check out my third interview with Charles Baxter on his novel The Sun Collective. We talked about convergence narratives, running out a clock during a story, and inventing a fictional drug that bends space and time for his characters. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 430 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com, and I just updated the website so you can more easily search and listen to each episode. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Buzzy Jackson, Diane Seuss, and Antoine Wilson. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.